Hi everybody, how are you doing today? Tonight. Welcome to, uh, yeah, whatever. So, <laughs> it's a pleasure having you here tonight. We're gonna give you, a, give you a great show. Everybody, a round of applause, come on. It's CCC, I can swear, right? I can swear at CCC, yes? Swearing, yes, no? Yes. Shut the fuck up. I missed the IQ because of all the... So, first of all, we want to apologize. There was a thing we discovered about the thingy, and we had to change the name of the talk. Yeah, that's right. So if you have uh, seen an early version of the Farplan, uh, that had a different title on it. And um, so what we're going to talk about is some, uh, some case that we analyzed. Um, and while doing so, we figured that we were dealing with something much bigger. So originally, we thought that we were looking at some industrial economic espionage attack. And then later on, it turned into a uh, high profile Probably nation-state uh, so espionage we really ever We're going to finish at the end with attribution. But the thing is, attribution is really, really hard. You can't ever really tell who it is. So we're going to be very careful about our attribution. But we can say, we can say at a very high likelihood this is a nation-state. So we are not going to say this is a nation-state attack, but rather this is a 99.9% nation-state attack. Because we're just those kind of guys. <laughs> we'll we get there the if end. we can. We'll get there if we can. So let's get started. I think it was against nation state, or was it by a nation state? Who? What? Where? Uh, okay. All right. So getting started. This is Tulan. I'm Gadi. First of all, there is a required Sony joke at this conference. It's just required, right? I mean, we can't go on without it. Told you. He, he, he came over and said, Gadi, we're, we're, I'm nuking the slide. He actually nuked it without my permission because he said there have been too many Sony jokes. It's now old news. And I had to fight him over this one. All us. So, um, this started the Israeli cert. The Israeli cert is out there, ready to get your complaints, abuse responses, uh, needs for help, whatever it is you want to do. Thank you. Um, Tillman is basically very, very humble. And a snob too, but that's beside the point. He's very, very humble. And you'll see at the, uh, in a second why. And he basically says he's a reverse engineer at CrowdStrike, which is true enough. Um, I'm required to put a few titles up there, so I removed my entire bio. I'm CEO of Symmetria, which is a startup. I'm chairman of the board of the Israeli CERT, which I'm, um, is um, kind of handled this presentation, this internet response. And I'm X some things over there which happened or didn't happen, whatever. So, Tillman is a snob about pizzas. That's what you should know about him before we get started. That's his bio. And I'm a dancing snob. I dance West Coast Swing. Now, to the topic at hand. <clears throat> this is the story, the backstory. It was on a dark, late April night. And I'm getting this phone call from a guy, a really, really nice guy. He understands security. He handles completely different things. And he says, Gadi, Somebody just tried to attack us. It looks like an APT. Are you interested in that? No. <laughs> so he, said, <laughs> he started sending, it started by just basically saying, send it over to me, let's see what's going on. And you'll see in a second how it worked. And that's why I, where I started looking for somebody to help us handle it technically. We have our people, but the search is very volunteer oriented. Eventually I found Tillman. And that's when I asked him for his help. And he was, yeah, look it over, right? Yeah. 
pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we didn't find much at first. I'll let you take that one. I, I missed that part. So We didn't find much at first. Oh, I'll yeah, we didn't find much at first. Yeah, so, so Gadi came to me and, and said, hey, we need some help with the, the technical analysis of this thing. So um, I'm always interested in new stuff, in, in challenging stuff. So I took a look. And um, it was very, very weird because everything started with a spear phishing campaign. You guys familiar with spear phishing, right? So um, there was a targeted, manually, specially crafted email that was sent to this victim organization that Gadi was talking about. And uh, that email um, had an Excel document attached to it, and the text was designed in a way to you know, trick the user into opening the, the Excel document. And, of course, the Excel document, when you would open it, would drop a payload. So that was the thing, right? And he was bored by it. He said, well, it looks interesting. I'll get back to you. That was basically <laughs> the beginning of it, right? And I didn't <laughs> for a long time. He didn't for about a month in which we worked other cases. And then things started to get interesting. And that's where we go into our story. So before we begin, is it an APT or not? That's the biggest argument Tillman and I had. Should we call this an APT or not? because some of this is really low level, some of this is really advanced, and is everything we see out there from the Chinese, for example, an APT? Is it advanced? Is it a buzzword? So this is, honestly, the biggest time waster in preparing this talk was an APT. Is it an APT or not? So that's the beginning of our story. Is it an APT or not, and are we gonna talk about it? So, Gadi, maybe we need to give some, to provide some context to this picture here. The, the interesting thing is that this spear phishing campaign that we initially looked at was uh, relying on user interaction. And uh, that's why there is, uh, I think the guy's called Dave over there. So, you know, other people, they, they, they use zero-day exploits or something like that to uh, break into a target machine and then they deploy their... Uh, uh, their, their, their backdoor tool on there and seal information or something like that. This particular threat relied on the user clicking OK. And I mean, if you do that, then all the technology up there, like firewalls, antivirus, and so, so on, doesn't help much, you know, if Dave clicks OK. So going on from there, yeah. we saw a spear phishing message. That was the first one. Hey, guys, whatever, here is the message. Next message. Hey, guys, I'm sorry, here is the file. Next message. Hey guys, I forgot to fall again, here it is. Now, <laughs> that's one of the reasons Tulan basically told me forget about it, man. It's not interesting. Maybe this guy is ultra smart or not, we'll get to that, but that was just plain weird. We just don't see that kind of thing. Or maybe they just wanted, to, uh, wanted the target to become really, really curious uh, about that file. <laughs> uh, uh, we can analyze psychologically, I, I'm not an expert. It could possibly be that's how they pass spam filters. It could possibly be that's how they gain interest from the users. It could possibly be they are just really, really bad at operations. Regardless, this is the beginning of what we saw. So just to get a little bit of a hint of what we're seeing up to now in December, there have been several campaigns that we have had um, some sort of coverage into. Not everything is covered on this timeline. But there is more than just the uh, original company that's adjacent to defense and aerospace in Israel that we saw. So starting with that fiction vector, we've got the spear phishing. So the attacker sent a specially crafted email. We saw that one, right? It was very sophisticated. Now, Feifei, don't disturb me. So next step, we had a macro-enabled dropper. Anybody since the 90s have seen a macro-enabled <laughs> dropper out there? We've seen a few, but it's not something that happens a lot. As Tillman just said, we usually use a vulnerability or something. 
Next up, the user needs to enable it. Next up, the backdoor is deployed. Till I'm going into all of that, it's pretty cool. And then it, it downloads and installs yet another version of itself as a service for, for persistence. So this is an example of what the Excel looks like. You can see it was Tillman who took the screenshot because of the German up there. That's a giveaway. Um, this is an example of a lure, an Excel that was sent. We just wanted to give you guys immediately some of the information. Um, if you look closely, it might look like it's Austrian. We don't know. It, it's a lure. We are guessing it's a, uh, aimed at a German language entity. We know it's a defense-related entity. Uh, uh, entity but we can't tell if it's Austrian or German or anything else. Just the lure to open the document is apparently Austrian. So, apparently. Yeah, so, so the way this works is uh, when the user first opens the Excel document, uh, they see the picture from the previous slide. They are, they are asked to enable macros or to allow macros to run. And when they do that, um, the payload gets deployed and the macro also switches to another worksheet, I guess is the term. Uh, and this is the, the decoy worksheet that they're presented with that's displayed to the user. And obviously, as Gadi pointed out, um, I mean, it's in German language, so we kind of know that the target has prob is probably German-speaking. And um, there's also military context, OK? Moving on. This is you. Uh, that's me. OK, so those of you who are, fam are familiar with the, with the um, open XML, the Office Open XML document format that is the default document format since I think Microsoft Office 2007, if I'm not mistaken, know that these documents are really zip files, right? Zip archives. And as with any other zip archive, you can extract that. You can extract the files from the archive. And this is what you get when you list the archive's content from the original uh, spear phishing attack. And we highlighted some of the more interesting entries for you. Let me start at the bottom here. So there's um, a, a directory called docprops, document properties. That's where all the metadata is stored, like who created the document, when was it created, when was it last edited, and stuff like that. Okay? Uh, and that's all in this core.xml um, file over there. Um, then the macro is in the first red line there, XL. VBA project, I mean, the, the macro language for Microsoft Office is Visual Basic for Applications, as you, you guys know, and that's where the macro is stored. It's in, in binary form, so it's not like readable code, but you can easily convert it back into uh, the original macro. Um, so where's the payload? The pay payload obviously is in the third red file there, XL custom property one.bin. Um, again, it's encoded. What the macro does is it lo loads this file or it loads this property, which is a property of the document, decodes the payload, drops it to a file, and runs it. Okay? So that's where all the, all the meat is. All right? So one of the first things uh, I guess most analysts do when they deal with something like this is they look at information that's statically available, you know. I mean, you can as well put the document in a, in a sandbox and, and open it there and watch it uh, uh, drop its payload. But you can take a look at the metadata first. And this is what's in the core uh, XML file. So you can see there, and we added the indenting for better readability. It's usually not indented. But um, you can see there, there is a creator XML tag, and that contains the handle woolen hat in, in Leadspeak. Okay, and it was also last modified by Woolen Hat. And when was that? It was created on um, April 
third, and it was also um, last modified just a few hours, about two hours after that, okay? So what we have, unless this information is spoofed, what we have here is an indicator, is a hint about when this attack took place or when it was prepared, if we are to believe this information, okay? So this is interesting. And um, later on, you will see how we use this kind of information to find other related campaigns, okay? So this is all statically available metadata. This is the custom property file that stores the payload. And um, you can see this is Unicode or, or white character encoding, so every other byte is zero byte. Um, but if you look at the, at the right-hand side of this hex dump, you can see some integer numbers there. So you can see the first number is a 77, the decimal number. Then comes a, uh, a pipe sign, pipe character, and then the second number is 90. And then the next number is 144, and so on. So if you take these numbers and com convert them into the corresponding binary values and the binary byte values, and write those to a file, what you end up, is, uh, what you end up with is a, an executable, a PE file. Okay? So this is the relevant part of the macro. As I've told you, you can easily convert the binary object back into the VBA co code. Um, and this is the relevant part of that. You can see um, it splits the text that it reads from the property thing with the pipe character, and then it dumps that to user profile, to, so to the user's profile directory under sysdll.exe, and, um, and then runs it by calling shell execute uh, with the open parameter. Okay, so this is how the, the payload gets invoked. All right, so now we know um, how the infection is carried out. There is this document, user has to click, okay, I want to allow macros to run, and then shell execute uh, runs the drop payload. So what's in the payload? What is the payload? And what you can do is you can load that up into like IDA Pro or you know, your, your, your preferred reverse engineering tool and take a look at the structure of the data that's in there. And um, this is what you see here in this colored graph. So at the beginning, you see this, uh, this green stuff there. That's uh, C standard library code. So that's stuff like, I don't know, uh, like, uh, like malloc or, uh, I don't know, write or send or something like that. So the basic, basic low-level API calls, right? Um, then the blue stuff is code uh, that relates to um, code that has been written for, for this binary. So that's the actual code uh, with the functionality of this thing. And then in gray, uh, you have constant data. So in the beginning, there is this little gray uh, piece over there that contains strings, hard-coded strings, as well as space for function pointers. So we will, on one of the next slides, uh, we will talk a little bit about uh, how API calls are resolved, which means uh, the code generates function pointers. The function pointers are stored in this area. And then you see some more code, the blue stuff, and then you see some other gray areas for, for, other, for more constant data. And what you find in there, um, if you know what you're looking for, is, for example, um, AES crypto constants. So AES is a symmetric crypto algorithm, right? Um, you have like the, these, these S boxes in there and some stuff like that. So that's all stored, stored over there. And then you can also see a tiny little blue uh, slice at the end, and this is where the main function lives. So when you start to execute this binary, execution starts at the main function, obviously, and this is where that main function lives, which is kind of odd that it's at the end, but, you know, whatever. 
Okay, and also uh, we provide the, the MD5 hash and the SHA-256 hash here uh, for you, so um, if you're interested, if you're curious, grab that file from the internet and uh, take a look at it yourself. Okay, so we did the same thing as with this Excel document. We first took a look at, at, at data, data that's statically available. And um, the first thing we looked at was everything that's part of the PE header, of the file header, okay? So what you see in the, in the PE header of this executable is a debug, so-called debug directory. The debug directory is where debugging information is stored. So for those of you who are more familiar with the Unix world or the Linux world, um, uh, you, you guys know that you can have like symbols in there, function names and stuff like that. So there is also debug information available. In the Windows world, PE binaries, you have that in the debug directory. However, when you're actually debugging something, most of that information is not embedded into the binary. It's stored in an, in an external file, a so-called PDB file. PDB stands for Program Database, if I'm not mistaken. Okay? So this debug directory that's part of the executable has to store a pointer, a link, the path of the PDB file. And that's what you see in blue at the bottom of the slide. So you can tell by looking at that again, unless it's spoofed, that this was uh, compiled in, on the D drive in that directory here um, under this name. And obviously, it's a Win32 program. Okay? Um, okay, so that was one thing, but we didn't. We didn't quite know what to, what to make out of this, so that didn't help us much with our analysis, but it was interesting that that path was in there. Then the next thing we did was we looked at resources. So in a PE binary, you can store additional arbitrary data. You can store, for example, mouse cursors, or you can store icons, or you can store whatever, right? And these additional uh, chunks of data are stored in so-called resources. So you have an additional directory in such a file, which is the resource directory or the resource table. And what you can see here is a list of resources in that binary. And what's interesting is that each resource has a language code associated with it. That's the stuff in blue and also in black down there. So the stuff in bold. Um, what's interesting here is that the, the language code, codes in blue stand for Argentinian which could mean, perhaps, that this binary was compiled on an Argentinian system, okay? Which might mean that the, the person who compiled this was running a system. Or they just changed it to the A when they needed to choose where to compile it from. <laughs> yeah, or that. So, I mean, of course, you, you always have to question this kind of stuff when you analyze it. But yeah, so there was this Argentinian nexus to the whole thing. Um, but when we, when we, I remember. When Tillman says Nexus, he means connection, Argentinian connection, just so that everybody knows. I was confused by that for months. All right. So, yeah, and, but I mean, we, we, we've both, both been confused because when we first discussed this, we said, that doesn't really make sense. I mean, Argentina attacking an Israeli uh, defense and space company. I mean, I can see other states attacking Israel or that sector in Israel, but. Perhaps not Argentina, but my, I mean, I'm a reverse engineer. I'm not a politician or anything like that, right? So, um, so yeah, anyhow, so that didn't quite make sense to us. So um, we said, okay, we got to reverse engineer the functionality and understand what this thing really does. And that was our next step. So this slide is supposed to give you a high-level overview. We will touch on some of the things 
that you see on here uh, on the next few slides, but this is a high-level overview. So the first thing we noticed was this is more complex, more advanced, more sophisticated than the stuff that we usually get to look at. Okay? So this was like really high-quality code. It was well-written and so on. And it has some interesting characteristics. One was the, the entire code was completely position-independent. So you can load that um, at any memory offset, offset and then run it from there, and it wouldn't rely on any offsets or relocation or stuff like that, for those of you who are familiar with these concepts, right? So usually, when you, want, when you do something like this, when you write position-independent code that can run anywhere in memory, you do that because you want to take this code and inject it into another process. And because you don't know where you, will up in mem where, where you will end up in memory, you have to keep the code position independent, okay? And I mean, injecting code into another process is always, let's say, uh, a little hostile or, you know, a little... Definitely not, uh, not, um, not friendly in most cases. Um, API calls, um, so the Windows APIs like write file, create file, and so on, those are all resolved dynamically, so they're not resolved through import and export port tables uh, that you usually have in binaries. They're all resolved manually and dynamically during runtime, which is part of the position independent, independence uh, paradigm here. Um, and they're also called through wrapper functions. So, you know, whenever the code wants to, say, access a file, or send data onto the network, or, uh, I don't know, change the registry key, you name it. It does that through a wrapper function that calls the actual function that does the thing, okay? And we were wondering why, because it makes the code more complex, but we didn't really understand why at that point in time. And the next thing we noticed was, whenever the code has to deal with immediates, or constants, as, as you can also say, uh, it would not use these constants directly, but it would uh, consult a lookup table. So let's say, um, let's say it wants to open an IP socket, okay? So in that case, it would uh, have to use the constant two for the, for the socket type, right? Um, but it wouldn't use the number of two, it would look, uh, consult this lookup table for another constant, then you know, find the mapping for that constant, and then that would give them the number two, and they would use that uh, in, the, in the actual API call. So we said, why, why is it doing that? And then suddenly we figured, okay, the code is written in a way that it exposes a generic, a, a unified interface, okay? So you can easily take this code and port it to, say, a Unix system, or a Mac, or BSD, which is also Unix, and, and, and other systems, right, other platforms, um, and keep the, the, the interface the same, right? You can use this, keep using the same constants, you can call the same wrapper functions that then internally call, of course, different functions, but this is like an abstract, abstraction layer between the system that the thing is running on and some other components that's interfacing with, okay? So there's more we found that was interesting. Um, the whole thing has to manage, has to maintain some sessions. You can, you know, talk to it over the network. That means you have to establish a session and so on. Uh, session management is um, uh, is tricky, and um, you have to keep uh, keep track of sessions of active sessions. This thing does it by hashing, but the hashing method that's used here is uh, related to Blowfish. It uses Blowfish, the crypto scheme, 
for hashing, which is kind of unusual, right? Uh, maybe it sounds a little over-engineered, but you can, I mean, it's all right, you can use Blowfish for that. That's a legitimate uh, application. But it's special, you know, you don't usually see that that often. Um, and then, and this is probably the most important point, <laughs> um, at some point we realized that the stuff that we were looking at was a generic API call proxy. And we will explain what that is uh, in a minute. So then we took these last two, uh, so originally we said syscall proxy, and then later on we changed that to API call proxy in our, in our notes. Uh, so that we took these two terms, syscall proxy, and we took blowfish, and we entered that into Google. Uh, actually, a friend, friend of mine did that, uh, a guy I'm working with. And um, the first hit we encountered was a post to bsdnewsletter.com from uh, over 10 years ago. And that was an announcement by a company called Core Security uh, that is based in Argentina, coincidentally, and also in America, in Boston. And they announced a new technology, a new product of theirs that now runs on, on, on some BSD system as well. Um, and that was a syscall proxy, and there was Blowfish involved. So with this pointer, we went back to our analysis and confirmed that the thing that we were looking at was their product. It was a product called Core Impact, for those of you who are familiar with it. So this is a little bit odd. We have seen threat actors using crimeware. We've seen threat actors developing their own special crafted tools. But using Core Impact is just something we have not seen before, and we've talked to many other researchers who have not seen that before. We encountered two others who suspected it. So number one, Core Security is based out of Argentina and Boston. That's general information. They are completely white hat. They're good people. They've been around for a long, long time. They are very, very innovative. They did um, point and pen test, or point and hack, if you like, back when nobody even thought about it. At least not on that uh, level of a scale of a tool that is so uh, automated and out there. Um, next, they've been, this sounds a little bit corny, but seriously, these guys have been helping organizations out there for more, far more than a decade to protect themselves and get better at security. They have a patent on this syscall thing, which is important to say, and they even lectured about it in Black Hat. They're very, very open and visible about what they do. Now, we talked to them, and they helped us throughout this process. They really tried to be as straightforward as they can and as visible as they can with us in responding to this incident. And that's, that's their statement, which we promised to include. But the important part is, for me, and everybody read that statement, <laughs> please. The important part for me is that these are good guys. Somebody took their tool, like we have seen happen before, and used it for malicious purposes. So far, so good. What Tillman is starting to say, no, new thread, tangent. What Tillman is starting to say is that, yes, this is core impact, but it's also extremely advanced. It's off-the-shelf technology and it is used by a nation-state level threat actor. That is the first twist in our story where we really realized something different is going on. Yeah, so um, to give you an idea, I mean, we, when we first looked at the thing, nothing really made sense. We said, well, Argentina, Argentina probably not, uh, doesn't sound reasonable, and then we were speculating maybe you know, there are other states or other uh, advanced threat actors that are known for knowing how to implement cryptography properly. And we saw cryptography being, being implemented properly here in here. So we said, maybe 
it's coming from that corner, and then we had to change our assessment again and so on until we figured, okay, it's this, uh, it's this thing, it's the core impact agent, um, and I will explain what that means in just a second. Um, and then it also uh, became clear to us why we thought this is like enterprise quality code that we were looking at because it's a commercial product. So. Just, just listen to what you just said. Enterprise level code. When have we last seen too, when, too many malware samples out there that were actually enterprise level code and did not come from a nation state? That's just the beginning of what's interesting about this. All right, so um, I guess we have to talk a little bit about core impact, and then I'll uh, continue with that slide here. So for those of you who are not familiar with it, and I haven't been familiar, or we haven't been familiar with it before this analysis either, um, it's a penetration testing uh, framework, and what you do with the con control panel or the console or whatever you want to call it, that's the software you're, you're uh, um, um, operating, what you do with that is you deploy a tiny component, which is called the agent, on a target system. That's the system you want to pen test, or one of the systems you want to penetration test. Okay, And the, the power of the tool lies in the ability to pivot from that system onto other systems behind it. Okay, So you, you, you deploy the agent on one system, and then you use that system as a stepping stone to reach through it to other systems behind it. Okay, And that's as far as I understand, I haven't used the product ever, but that, as far as I understand, or we understand, this is the uh, main feature that makes uh, Core Impact so powerful. In other words, check their websites. Right. <laughs> All right, so um, um, we want to talk about some of the technical, I mean, we could talk, talk about the technical details and the technical uh, specialties forever. Uh, it's, it's no, you can talk about the technical details forever. If you say so. Uh, so um, yeah. So, but um, we don't want to bore you with with too much of it. But there is some stuff that we uh, that we uh, chose just to show you how advanced this is. Um, this is the the code that you see down here. This is the lookup table for constants. So you can see it takes a key or the lookup value as an argument, and then it iterates over the map and uh, looks for that other constant. I mean, that's how you how you perform lookups in a lookup table, right? Um, so um, that is that is that part here. There is another one. There's one for status codes or error codes, as they're called here, and then is, is another one for uh, for actual constants like the IP socket one I just talked about. Okay, um, but really um, the key feature is this API call proxy. So quick show of hands, maybe how many of you are familiar with the concept of syscall proxying? Anybody? Okay, a few people. So, uh, who is familiar with the concept of user space and kernel space? Awesome. So, that is great. <laughs> so, the idea behind syscall proxying is to have the kernels, to use the kernel space of one system, and that's the system that I'm penetration testing or attacking or whatever. Um, but this system is only running a small stub executable, and the user space is offloaded to another system. And this system communicates over the network with the stub component here. So you basically offload the user space onto another system. And then this user space and this kernel space communicate over the network. Why do you want to do something like that? Sounds really crazy, right? Um, if, you, 
if you implement such a generic stub binary that just takes you know, a user call identifier and some parameters and then runs it here, you can keep all the logic outside of the stub binary. The stub binary can be really, really tiny, um, and you can implement all the logic here on your console, on your system. Okay? So if you want to add another feature to your attack tool, you only have to do that here. You can leave that part alone. And you're not, it's also obsequized, less risky for the operation. You don't necessarily need to put everything in one place. You can right. change it up. Exactly. So you end up with a very tiny executable that generically proxies system calls from your user space somewhere else in the world to your target. One, one thing that's not very technical, if you consider modular malware, if, you wanna, if you're an operation, a nation state, or somebody very serious, you'd create something modular, and as you compile new agents, you'd put different aspects of it depending on the target. Now, if you can do it on the fly, after you're in the target, without risking anything to begin with, or much, that is pretty cool shit. I, I said shit just because this is CCC and it's obligatory to say that. Okay, so does that make sense to, to people? All right, so what, what they have in their, uh, in their tool, what we have seen in the tool, is not quite a syscall proxy because it's one level above the syscall level. I mean, when you um, write code for the Windows system, you don't usually call syscalls. You call um, API functions that are more high level, like write file is a high level API function that translates to a syscall maybe, but there are other high level ones. So what they did was they, they implemented the same concept, but on the API level. So you have the control panel over there, you have the agent deployed over here, the box in blue, and then an underlying Windows system that exposes an API, and all the communication takes place over the network or whatever. Okay? And then, can you switch back to the previous slide for one second? So, and then, as I've said before, this agent can then be instructed to tunnel connections, basically to proxy connections, or tunnel is maybe a better word because that, uh, otherwise we can confuse it with the proxy term over there. Then you can tunnel connections to a third system and do the same thing. So you can basically, I don't know if I should use the term onion routing, routing because, <laughs> but yeah, you can do something like that. Okay? So that's really cool. Um, and then of, of course, they also implemented their own network protocol for that. So we called this an RPC uh, network protocol because really this reminded us of remote procedure calls. So write file is turned into a remote procedure call in this case. So Gadi said we have to include uh, an IDA Pro screenshot. So here it is. This is um, IDA Pro. This is the send payload function. That's what we labeled it as. Um, you can either send it encrypted or you can send it unencrypted. The Hold on a second. Don't you guys think, I know I'm just disturbing you right now, heckling him, but that's part of the fun. It's 11 p.m., 11.30. So don't you guys think that if we just put assembly code out there, or if we took IDA Pro screenshot, that looks cooler? No, seriously, hands up. Everybody who thinks it looks cooler. Every, okay, let's do this another way. Everybody take your end up with me. Everybody take your end up. Now, everybody who doesn't think it's cool. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> All right, but uh, um, let's talk about the cryptography they use. So what they do is, for every session, they generate a, a pseudo-random session key of 256 bits, and um, they use this for AES encryption. So that's their AES key. But in order to securely transfer that key to the other system they're talking to, um, they have to use something like, you know, some, some as, uh, asymmetric crypto. In this case, they use RSA. They use 1024-bit RSA, which means there must be a public key 
in the binary, and in fact, there is a hard-coded public key in the binary, and that public key um, changes across campaigns. So you can, by looking at the public key, you can say this is a sample that belongs to this campaign, and this is a sample that belongs to another campaign. All right. One more thing to note here. We have seen malware before that uses 3-bit RSA, if that makes any sort of sense. But, but still, using um, this small key is kind of weird, in a way. I personally don't really see how weird it is, but Tillman insists, and he just forgot, so I'm reminding him. All right, so yeah, let's skip over this rather quickly. So this is the Blowfish hashing that they use to track sash, keep track of sessions. You can see down there they use this low-level Blowfish function to uh, hash an integer, uh, which is the, I think, if I remember correctly, the, the file descriptor number of the socket that the session relates to. Okay, next slide. So here's some more assembly. Um, there is, I told you that the code is position-independent, but um, the problem with position-independent code is that you cannot really very easily configure it. You cannot easily pass parameters to it. But they need to have some kind of configuration data, like the RSA key, maybe um, a command and control server IP address, or uh, command and control server sounds so offensive. Maybe we should say uh, control panel IP address, and then also maybe a campaign ID, something like that. So there is, uh, are some parameters that are used to configure the, the dashboard. Agent. Dashboard. <laughs> dashboard, yeah. <laughs> Operator's interface. So um, what they do is they, they um, the, the blue, blue box down there is the code, is the entry point that they really want to call, or that, where they really want to start. But before they do, they need to prepare an environment. They need to push some uh, some arguments on the stack, so to speak, right? So what they do is they start at the gray box up there, jump down to the second gray box, then call back up, and then do some more stuff, and then jump down to the blue box. And you can, uh, you can see some assembly code that relates to this chart. So you can see the jump at the very top, and that, that takes us down, and that's not on the slide anymore, and then you can see a call back up, and then that second line there, the pop EAX, basically then pops the instruction pointer from the stack into the EAX register, for those of you who are familiar with that, right? And then you can see these pushes there of the long, uh, these long immediates there. Um, these are ASCII strings. So if you would take these and render them as ASCII strings, you would see that the first one is an IP address, the second one is a campaign identifier, and the third one is the, what we call the R parameter, but we don't know what the purpose is. Okay, so once you're able to extract this kind of information, you can collect samples and extract, you know, and, and mine that data a little bit. And we did that, and we came across these command and control server IP addresses. Now you can see they, or at least the first four, kind of live in the same, you know, in the, in, 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 uh, the same proximity. They live in related network ranges. In fact, each of them belongs to its own very tiny network range, slash 27 or slash 28 or something like that. And these ranges are all operated by a German company, in fact. It's called IABG, I forget what that stands for, but they're, they're a technology company, uh, New Munich, and they also offer satellite services. So they're probably operating some satellite or something like that, and they're offering uh, satellite links as a service, so internet connectivity through satellites. Uh, which means when you do geolocation lookups for those IP addresses, you get something like this. Um, yeah. Um, and an interesting note about the crowd. 
Um, you are not, uh, many of you are not operating your own networks because only a couple of you took up a camera and took a photo of these IOCs. <laughs> Interesting note about the crowd. Okay, so we got to give props to a friend of ours um, called Mark Schlesser. Um, Mark Schlesser runs internet-wide scans for interesting data. For example, he does internet sweeps for SSL certificates, and that's the reason why we reached out to him. So we, we um, f figured that one of the IP addresses was, or one of the, the campaigns from the previous slide, um, used an SSL-enabled version of Core Impact. So the command control connection was SSL protected, which means there must be a certificate involved. So we talked to Mark and said, hey, can you, uh, because that IP address was no longer online, can you dig uh, into your database? Can you see if you have the certificate from that IP address? And he found this certificate. Um, and as you can see there, it's in a certificate that was issued to, uh, to core security technologies. This is the RSA key. Uh, is it RSA? I think so. Um, in 2009, it's not valid anymore, but I mean, of course, you can still use it. Turns out, whenever you use Core Impact, or at least as far as we know, um, with SSL, you will end up using this certificate here. So by scanning for SSL services that use this certificate, or offer this certificate, you can identify Core Impact C2s. So we asked Mark, hey, can, can you give us any other IP addresses that were hosting this certificate? And he did, and that's how we identified some more of the campaigns. So thank you, Mark, for that. So let's talk a little bit about campaigns. Do you want to take over again? Sure. Um, you take this slide, I'll take the next. Okay. So, um, first thing we did was we took at a look at all the lore documents, the Excel spreadsheets that we found, that we collected. Okay? As you remember, hopefully, from one of the first slides, there is this metadata in there that gives you the create date and that gives you the modification date. And then there is also the, the handle of the creator and the handle of the last modifier. And that's what you see in this table. Now, the create date isn't very telling because you can take a document that was created 10 years ago and then modify it and use it for this campaign. Thank you. Um, so that is the third column, the modification dates, and that's chronologically ordered, as you can see. So the first um, attack we came across occurred on April 23rd. Uh, Woolen Hat was the guy, and it was targeting this Israeli target that we talked about. And then on the same day, there was another attack against another Israeli target, and so on and so on. So then in, in um, July, you can see various attacks against European targets, and we will talk more about those in a second. And the last one was actually from this month. Um, we had to redact some of the operator name, uh, creator names because they, were, they identified the target, the victim. Right? They probably... So the thing is, we didn't really know whether somebody used... This is metadata, right? So we, can, we don't really think somebody tried to use metadata to pass through scanners or to pass through the human eye. So what we think happened, some of these documents were created, specifically as lures, and some of the others one, so other ones were stolen from the victim, whether it's open source or not. We're, we can't, we're not sure we didn't find them. And put their names... Their names were on the document. Now, if you want to see one thing that we didn't redact, um, second from the bottom, the name Noam is actually Israeli, just as a side note. So, moving on. 
Um, I can, actually, I can take, take this one. one too. All right. Um, so the next thing, uh, of course, was uh, the core impact variance that we came across. I told you earlier that there is this, uh, this RSA key in there. There is a campaign identifier. So we did the same thing. We mapped them onto the document modification dates. So these are the dates, the first column that we found in the documents that dropped the respective executables. In the second column, we have the IP addresses that you already saw. Then we have a campaign identifier. And then we have the RSA key. And you can see there is a clear correlation between RSA key, campaign ID, and C2 IP address. So it seems like they keep their infrastructure, meaning command control servers, for the different campaigns separate. Okay? So they use a different C2, a different RSA key, and a different um, campaign ID for each campaign that they're running. Intelligence-wise, if you go to the previous slide for a second, and you look at the operation, you can see the creation date of the actual Excel lures is usually earlier a little bit than the actual attack. So if you can identify these modifiers and you can detect the lure ahead of time, you can probably prevent the attack altogether, depending on your operational security and, and if you have this type of intelligence capability in-house, whether from your own intelligence or something trying to get into your network or from outside of it. And just to be, just to be very clear, um, we limited ourselves to lore documents that fit into our pattern or in, into our, this, this modus operandi. Uh, we didn't consider any other core impact samples we came across because, of course, it's possible to find others, but they're not related to activity by this, by this threat actor here. Okay? Um, so we're going to look at some decoy spreadsheets. Um, this one is against an Israeli target. We had, so the first target, as we discussed, was an, an organization adjacent to the defense and aerospace industries. But very quickly it spread through Europe and through Israel, some academic institutions and some defense agencies across Europe. So this is one of the lures just looking very real, it, even as a cool graph. I don't know how accurate the data is for the organization, but still pretty impressive. I mean, you will not see something impressive like that again. Their graphic designer sucks. <laughs> so, I mean, the data, the data on there, I mean, like this table up there, is not really interesting. What's interesting for us from an intelligence perspective is we take a look at this and we try to figure out who the target was because obviously the, the decoy has been designed for a specific target. Okay, and that's why we, we are going to show you some of the other decoy spreadsheets here now. So, for example, this one is listing Israeli holidays or other types of observance days. Nothing very interesting, more than open source for the past several thousand years. But <laughs> if you want to go to the Bible, um, well, to be pedantic, some of these are not in the Bible, but still, it's pretty clear, nothing very, very special. Um, not a very good lure, but it does have information, looks very, I guess, safe. Next up, this is really horrible graphically. I mean, who is the graphic designer? Seriously, would anybody click on enable after they see this? Would you? So that's another example which is pretty nice. So we didn't figure out the target of this one, by the way. So this is, this is an attack from May. Uh, we, we don't know who the target was. So if, if you in the audience got this message and got past the horrible the graphic design, please tell us. Yeah. This is really boring yet again. Not very impressive. 
but maybe they were, tr uh, you know, if I was them, I would, I would actually play with human beings to try and see what they would click. <laughs> and what other reason have they got to do this? Um, this is from an Israeli target. You can see that it's, again, innocuous information, nothing very special there, but it seems to be internal to the organization. Um, this is a little bit interesting. The, it took us a while. We went to TNI, we went to reverse image search, we searched um, Google for logos with triangles and, and circles. We did everything we possibly could. Eventually, Tillman found it. Does it's, anybody know what, what, what this, who this is? Nobody's going to know what Does this is. Does anybody know what this is? Nobody's going to know what Delta? this is. Anybody? Ha. So, <laughs> if we had time, I would say, let's play a really annoying game and try to find it on Google. And whoever wins gets a beer or something. But, uh, or pizza in our case. But this is actually a Georgian organization that's related to NATO. You can read the Wikipedia page. Again, not very interesting, except for the logo. But there is this military yeah. context. Now this, you've always seen. It's one of the more elaborate documents. It's convincing, even has a little bit of graphic design, although I don't know who the designer is again. And that's probably a stolen document. I find it hard to believe they actually created it. Now, again, we must stress, there, is some there are some things in there that look like they're from um, Venice and Vienna, but this is a German language lure. We don't know who the actual target is. It could be anywhere that speaks German. But it is a defense organization. Um, this is just a list of names. It's just generals, Capitan, yeah. Admiral, Colonel Major. What is Colonel Major? Is that the made-up rank? Um, again, not very impressive. But it was uh, targeting the same organization as the previous one, so it's obvious that... Thank you. It, it's obvious that they were targeting the military sector, the, a German-speaking military organization. This one is also probably a stolen document. Also German-speaking. You can look at the logo, which is kind of nice, but other than that, not very interesting. Um, yet another lure. We can start skipping them, unless you really yeah, want to see more what's, of it. What's interesting here is that, that this seems to target um, embassies, German-speaking, so embassies in a German-speaking country. <laughs> I mean, there are not that many, but yeah. Oh, just to be clear, the, the attacks, as we saw in the timeline earlier, were not just against Israeli targets and German-speaking targets. There are also ones in Eastern Europe and others all over the place. Another one, and this one is interesting a little bit because we tried to find out how to decode this thing, and, and we, we, think, uh, well, we think they're just messing with us and did this on purpose because everything repeats. No, I, I think um, they, they, they messed this up themselves. In Israel, we used to call this Chinese whenever it wouldn't decode the Hebrew. I'm just saying. Hold on, take the microphone, man. Cyrillic? Cyrillic, but it doesn't. That's what Russian looks like if you if you select the wrong code page. So it could be Cyrillic, but if, um, you, display, if you display Cyrillic and not the code page for Windows for Cyrillic, but in in uh, Latin one, it looks like this. But it still doesn't. I don't know. Maybe you need to try this, but it still doesn't make sense it's, that it's repeating over the whole sp spreadsheet. But if I you actually take the, have Russian enabled on my laptop and I didn't see it, but we'll try anyway. Well, but if you if you take the the title column and you search for that on the internet, you will find that this is a table uh, of missile launch events 
that is on Wikipedia. So they probably try to use that as a lure or a decoy. Um, this last one is personally not very interesting to me. Do you have anything to say about that? No. But it did say if you want all the information, notice how they started putting in instructions. They didn't just want people to click enable anymore. If you like, if you want to see more, please keep, click enable and they actually misspelled the view, which is kind of nice. I guess their conversion rates were low. This one is interesting for several reasons. Number one, again, it's a stolen document. It's against an Israeli target. But what's more interesting for me is that it was sent around the date of an actual event happening in Israel. So if you send it to academia, it's, which was some of the targets, you can actually notice that it, it improves your conversion rate. If they know of the event, they might click on it more. But that's just a wild guess about trying to time the events in real life to something else, which shows a little bit more operational sophistication. It shows there, this is one of the later, I believe it's one of the later campaigns. Yeah, so this is from uh, December 1st. This is from this month, just now. So it shows they have really, they're really interested in the academic sector in Israel, and they're trying to, their operational capability is growing, even if a little bit. Trying to tie in to something that will convert people by their interests. There's another example of that, which is the same conference, once again, just um, an agenda. And they once again try to give you instructions to increase conversion. I don't know if it's related to the previous one, what their conversion rates were. We'll discuss that a little bit later. But it's interesting nonetheless. Um, this is you. Okay. So, um, uh, and just one more thing. We, um, there is a very old rule in the antivirus world of do not use the attacker's name. Nowadays, we don't really follow it, but for me, it was still important. We didn't really want to call it what the attacker called this. Um, so we started thinking of a name, and I just said, let's call it Name Credential Stealer. And we went with that. All right. So um, I think we need to hurry up a little bit because we're running out of time. So You need to come here for that. Yeah, I will. So this, this threat actor, this group here, doesn't only use Core Impact. They also have their own custom tools. Um, and this is one of them. And this has one purpose and one purpose only, and that is stealing credentials. And instead of uh, showing you more, more uh, white background slides with black text on it, we said, let's show you some code. Because this thing here is written in, uh, in, in a .NET language, which means you can decompile it back into some form of the original source code. You can recover some form of the original source code. And of course, that's what we did. And then you can read source code instead of uh, machine code, assembly code. So um, we'll uh, skip over this uh, really quickly. So there's some stuff happening here that we're not going to talk about. But then here you can see, um, first of all, there is this email address here, right? And we already know that handle, um, right? So um, this was not only dropped by a lore document that followed the same uh, the same concept, it also contained that handle up there. So it's pretty obvious that this is related to the same threat. Um, what this does is it takes a look at the uh, Firefox profile directory and then steals these two files, the sign-ons SQLite and key3db. These are the files where different Firefox versions store uh, browser credentials, usernames, passwords, right? And if you use your browser to log into your, say, Gmail or whatever um, web uh, mail, uh, portal, then you pro, you know, not you, but some people store their credentials in, in those files and um, by stealing those you get access to these things and then you can use that data, for example, to design another spear phishing campaign. And then it sends that off to this exact 
this very address here, uh, which is a Gmail address, and that's why it's talking to smtpgmail.com, and it even has... Um, yeah, and we had Hard -coded to... Hard-coded credentials. We, this had, is a we drop had to zone. take those out. <laughs> so moving on quickly, moving on quickly, we have conclusions. So this is likely, again, we are not going to commit to that 100% because we believe attribution is never 100% until somebody comes out and says, we did it. But this is very likely a nation state. We have other reasons to believe this as well, which we can disclose at this stage. They have limited operational and technical capabilities, although they're getting better. Um, we have seen a remote, sophisticated remote access tool. We want to say even very advanced, but you can't really compare these things. Some things are very advanced in one thing, others are another. Um, the implant itself is a legitimate protection tool. It's off the shelf, though. It's advanced, and it's misused. And the big thing is everybody can now use this. They know Core Impact is out there. They should have known before, but honestly, this is, instead of just being a, um, it's another crimeware thing, now it's a nation-state-level tool that has been used once actively, more than once, in many, many campaigns, and other people can now have this capability for a certain amount of money or stealing it, although Core Impact does their best to keep this safe. Um, we want to give some quick uh, props. We stand on the shoulders of giants. There's been some research on one of these campaigns, which was called Goalie, by Omri Moyal at Clear Sky, and there are some others who worked on this. We want to give them an anonymous credit right now because they deserve it. Um, these are some MD5 ashes. If you want some IOCs, you can also email us or check the report in a few days. Uh, we want to thank the Israeli CERT CrowdStrike and Symmetria for all their help. Uh, appreciation to CERT Bund because they helped us out in the incident response. And that's about it. Now, questions. We know what the first question is going to be. We don't have a lot of time, so just skip that one. Um, so, did you mention the report? What? Did you mention the report at all? Yes, we're going to release it in a few days. So there is a technical re So we have way more information than, than we're able to touch on during this presentation. We have a technical report, a very technical report, I should say, uh, 50 pages something, uh, that we are going to release to the public in just very a few days. Very soon. Yeah. Now, um, I'm going to skip the first question. We, we planned this to be theatrical. We don't know who the nation state, what the nation state is or whatever. And one does not simply, you, you like that text, right? Attributed tax based on IPs alone. <laughs> that said, we, we don't know who's behind this, right? We, we don't know who it is, right? We can't really tell you. Come on, come here. Say, hey. face, take a picture. Um, so we probably have time for what, one minute of a question. Does anybody have questions at this stage? Um, first of all, Thank you, Gadi. Thank you, TW. Uh, we do have one question from the internet. And for those in the room, please line up in front of the microphones if you do have questions. So did you log into the Gmail account? No, we did not. Thanks. Uh, that, that's the, we probably could get some uh, victim data from there about their success, but we decided not to break the law. Somebody else is going to do that who can break the law because they are the law. Okay. I am the law. OK. Any other questions? Anybody? left. Microphone two. Um, I think it's a smart move uh, that you can see spammers do to focus on really dumb people when they try to scam you. They make it really obvious that it's a scam so that the people who do fall for it are really dumb and it's not going to be noticed for a while. So maybe we see some pickup of that tactic in the APT world now. 
the, the idea is that this is now, even though it was widely used in the 90s, it's new. We have only been seeing it, Tillman can speak of this more in the past year. But right now, it's passing filters, and it's getting work done. Yeah. I didn't get the question, by the way. No, we're going to see no, this either. more. So, uh, yeah, no, um, we actually talked to all the victims that we could identify, and some of them have been aware of this activity, fortunately. Yeah. But not all. Any other questions, please? Um, microphone number three, I think you'll line up first. Uh, uh, hi. Uh, I was wondering who controls the CNC servers. Uh, is it Core Impact or is it the attacker? No, no, Core Impact, it's very important to say again, Core Impact is not related to this, they're good guys. The attackers are controlling them. But, I mean, th there is probably the, uh, the, the controller component of Core Impact running somewhere. Uh, I think we, we think that these IP addresses that we showed, they're probably just acting as proxies, as network proxies, and relay traffic to the real backend. But the real backend is probably running the Core Impact console. And, and we can't really say who it is at this stage. And uh, the reason I'm asking is because the certificates were signed by Core Security, right? That's yeah. a certificate for the actual so, so agent. Is it the same, secure, is it the same uh, certificate for any, uh, any CNC, or do they sign each one specifically? So we only saw an SSL-enabled version in one case. All the others didn't use SSL encryption. All right, thank you very much. Hold on, this, this guy is really important to hear his question. Yes, I understand, um, but we are, almost, we are out of time, and All the right. next talk will actually start All in right. some thank 30 you. seconds. Thanks a lot. Um, Thank you. If you're kind enough, please handle this question outside and give them, a, uh, give them some applause. Thank you.